I, I just wanted to say as we begin our series today, uh, please bring your Bible, even if you're not in the habit of bringing your Bible, because believe it or not, um, even though we're not doing verse by verse, going through things extensively, which you might question after today, because we're actually going to be in it pretty deep today, um, we're going to be bouncing around a lot, and you may want your Bible, or at least a Bible app that you can be seeing where we're going. And, you know, I, I've been really blessed by the number of people that have come up in the last month, month and a half after the sermon, and, and it, I can't tell you how many times in ministry uh, after I speak, hear things from people of the nature of, how did you know exactly where I was at? And I was just thinking, isn't that a confirmation of, of what we talked about last week with Nathaniel? Nathaniel was like having this, this encounter with Christ, and he, Jesus he says something, and he goes, how do you know me? When? When did this happen? How did this happen? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And he communicated to Nathaniel that he sees him and that he knows him. And, and friends, that's the beauty of God's word, that it's living and active. And there is no human way that I can know where all of you are at and what you're struggling with, what you're dealing with. But every week as I search God's word and search what he would have me speak on, he uses that to speak to each one of you and to say to each one of you personally, I see you and I hear you. I see you with the kids. I see you at work, I see you with the relational struggles, I see you with the old habits and addictions that are hard to kill, with all of the struggles of life, I see you and I'm there for you, and that's a, that's a real encouragement. So, amen to God and His Word, and we're going to dive into that today. As we looked at the first chapter of John last week, we saw that John incorporates a lot of symbols and uh, numbers, especially into his gospel, especially the number seven, which occurs uh, more frequently than any other number. And he, he uses numbers to weave themes and symbolisms throughout the book. And as I said at the beginning of the series, there's, there's three main uh, symbols and numbers and themes and things that we're going to be looking at throughout our study. One is the seven personal lengthy conversations that Jesus has with certain individuals. We saw last week Nathaniel chapter 1. We're going to look at Nicodemus in chapter 3, the woman at the well in chapter 4, the blind man chapter 9, Martha chapter 10, Thomas in chapter 20, and Peter in chapter 21. We're also going to look at the seven I am pronouncements that Jesus made throughout the Gospels when he said, I'm the bread of life in chapter 6, I'm the light of the world in chapter 8, I am the door of the sheep in chapter 10 of John, uh, I'm the good shepherd in chapter 10, I'm the resurrection and the life in chapter 11, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14, which many of you know very well. <clears throat> then today, John chapter 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Finally, we're also going to be looking at seven miracles that Jesus performs. Uh, Jesus performs somewhere around 35 miracles in his ministry, in his time here on earth, but John focuses in on seven miracles that Jesus did, and he, he refers to them as signs because they reveal powerful truths about Jesus' identity. So we have changing the water into wine in chapter 2, which we're going to look at today, uh, the official son who was healed in chapter 4, the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, walking on water in chapter 6, 
healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, and then finally the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. So we got these three different things, seven lengthy conversations with individuals that are very personal and, and longer than in the other Gospels, seven I am statements that Jesus makes that reveal powerful truths about himself, and then seven um, miracles, which John calls signs because they're more about the symbolism than they are about the raw power. And we're going to be interweaving those throughout this series. In chapter one of John, John used words and themes like light and the word and darkness and dwelt, that the word of God dwelt, literally tented or camped among us. Lamb, all of these words are powerful with symbolism from the Old Testament. But as he goes forward in the book of John, he starts narrating some symbolic actions that Jesus does. And he never calls them, these actions, miracles. He calls them signs instead. And as I said, he calls them signs because John isn't as interested in the power of a miracle, which by its definition, we know that a miracle is an act of power. But John isn't as caught up in the power of the miracles as he is in the symbolism and the deep meaning behind what Jesus is communicating, the theological truths. And they signify really what it looks like and what it means when a person is saved, when a person accepts Christ by faith. So, also in the Gospels, we see this pattern, many of you have heard this before, of, of narrative and discourse. What do I mean by that? There's a story followed by teaching, or there's a miracle and a sign followed by teaching or by interpretation. And we see that in all of the Gospels, and particularly in the Gospel of John. Jesus feeds the 5,000, then he gives a teaching to them about how he is the bread of life. Uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after he has declared himself or identified himself as the resurrection and the life. So there's always a story and teaching, a miracle and interpretation or teaching. And we see that today in our passages as well. Each sign reveals something essential about Jesus' identity and his mission. And it calls forth from you and I, the, the listeners, the hearers, the readers, faith and action. It, it demands a response from us. For those without faith, the signs mask the truth. We see that all the time in the parables. Jesus tells a story, and half the people are like, what's he talking about? And the other half are like, oh, I get it. I see the connections with real life and theology. They, they create confusion and misunderstanding for those who disbelieve, for those who are without faith. Nicodemus can't comprehend the metaphor of what it means to be born again. The woman at the well doesn't get right away what Jesus means by living water. The Jews later on in chapter 2, our passage today, don't understand when Jesus says, destroy the temple in three days, I'll, re I'll rebuild it. They're like, how can you rebuild in three days something that took us, you know, half of a century to build? So they don't comprehend what he's saying at face value. Like the parables in the other gospels, the, the metaphors and symbols uh, of the fourth gospel both reveal and conceal at the same time. Some people get it for those who have faith, for those who are willing to believe and to be open-minded, and some people just can't grasp it because uh, at, at the very root of their heart, they 
uh, don't believe in God. They don't have the faith. So today we're going to be pairing Jesus' first miracle and sign in John, which is the turning of water into wine in chapter 2. So you can begin to turn to chapter 2 of John in your Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel, or find it on your Bible app. And then we're also going to be pairing that with chapter 15, the vine and the branches, because chapter 15 records his last I am statement. I am the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser. And chapter 15 is really shedding light or truth or teaching on what we read in the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. So John chapter 2, if you have it, you can follow along or you can listen as I read. John writes, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some of it out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him, and when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn out the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I want to unpack this today with you and then draw a number of lessons. Our passage begins with the phrase, on the third day. And I don't believe that it's necessarily signifying or indicating a new day because if we're following John's chronology from chapter one as we marked it out, it would actually be the fifth day. And I don't believe it's a reference to what happened on the third day, because on the third day, Jesus is still calling disciples, and yet here at the wedding, they're all there. They're all joining him. So you have to ask, what's going on here? I think it's a literary device where John is using the term third day to symbolize a lot more than just chronology or days. I believe what he's doing here is he is connecting the sign that Jesus does at the wedding with, with his resurrection. Uh, Jesus' resurrection will make possible the salvation symbolized by the turning of water to wine. And that's really what's happening. And this is confirmed at the end of the chapter, as I mentioned earlier, when he's debating with the Jews about if they tear down the temple, he can restore it in three days or after three days, or on the third day he can restore it. And John interprets this in terms of Jesus' resurrection. So we see a lot of symbolism going on here by third day. It's interesting also that Third day goes even deeper than this with symbolism because in creation, if you remember, in Genesis 1, the creation begins with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. It was kind of like water everywhere and creation begins. And in Genesis 1.11, it says that God created plants and trees and fruit, uh, the fruit of plants and trees on the third day. 
which is exactly the day that John references here, which is exactly Jesus going from water uh, to the fruit of plants, uh, grapes and wine. So it's natural that Jesus, as the creator of all things, has power over the very things that he created, and we see that clearly here in John. There's one more thing, though. Apparently, there was a Jewish custom that, that young maiden girls, young virgin girls, would get married on the third day of the week because they saw that as a day that signified more blessing. Because if you look at the Genesis account, twice on day three, God declares that it was good. It was good. And so they think that since the Lord declared a double blessing on that day, that that day was a good day to get married. So all of these things are rolled into on the third day. Verse 1 tells us that the wedding takes place in Cana of Galilee. If you want to jump ahead in John, look real quick at John chapter 21, verse 2. Actually, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it for you. John 21, verses 1 and 2. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were there together. Where is Nathaniel from? He's from Cana. So now at this wedding, Nathaniel has the answer to his question back in chapter 1, verse 43. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, I guess it can. And it's kind of funny that Jesus performs this first miracle in Nathaniel's hometown, kind of like You know, I I said I saw you under the fig tree, and you believe. Are you on board now? Are you getting that? Yeah, good things can actually come from unexpected places. Jesus is affirming that to him, and I think it's quite humorous and powerful at the same time. Well, verse 1 also informs us that Mary was at the wedding, but then verse 2 tells us that Jesus and the disciples were invited guests. And it seems that Mary has some prominent... Uh, role, serving in some capacity, some responsibility. Um, And we don't know quite what that is. And at this point, I want to do a quick tangent, and I just want to say um, extra-biblical material. What is extra-biblical material? Extra-biblical material is literature outside of the Bible. We consider God's Word as inspired and inerrant. But there are also History accounts from Josephus, Herodotus, other things that we draw information from. And I want to give you a quick uh, screen, which I believe is helpful. When we're talking about extra-biblical material, I think there's three questions. You can write it in the margins of your notes if you want, that are really important to ask ourselves. Number one, when I'm reading extra-biblical material, does it contradict what I read in the Bible? If it does, then I throw it out as erroneous or maybe fabricating or embellishing because I take God's word as absolute truth. Number two, does it introduce new doctrine or theology? If it does, and if it's not supported in Scripture, then once again, I don't, I don't listen to it. So those are two huge screeners. The third is that if it doesn't contradict Scripture, and if it's not adding new doctrine or theology, then it can be very useful or interesting in terms of historical information, but I don't treat it as inspired, inerrant, infallible truth. Just, oh, that's interesting, and that might shed some knowledge on this and that in terms of history and culture. Having said that, there's a 10th century Coptic gospel. What is that? 
It's an Egyptian manuscript that they found in the 1800s, dates back to the 10th century. And it claims that Mary was at the wedding because she was the sister of the bridegroom's mother. I'm like, whoa, okay. So trace this out with me real quick, and then we'll move on. But it mentions sister, which I believe probably means sister-in-law. And why do I say that? Because John's gospel is the only gospel that even tells us that Mary has a sister. Chapter 19, verse 25, if you want to write that down. The woman at the foot of the cross. It talks about the women who were at the foot of the cross, and it says, and Mary's sister, Mary. And people were like, why would Mary have another sister named Mary? Why would parents name two kids Mary in the same family? And we talked about in previous talks that the Greek word can mean not only sister, but sister-in-law. And Luke 19, I mean, Matthew, I'm doing a wrong thing here. Let me stop, start over. John 19.25 tells us that this Mary was the wife of Clopas. And where have we seen that word Clopas? Luke 24. Clopas is one of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I have argued for some time now that the other unnamed disciple is his wife Mary. They were Jesus' uncle and aunt who presumably were very involved in his life after the point at which Joseph left the scene, and we don't have history on that. So that means that most likely the groom who's getting married is their son, James, the son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus and Clopas are the same in the Greek. So this is one of Jesus' disciples, most likely, James, the son of Alphaeus. He's getting married. Mary is the sister-in-law of uh, you know, the, the groom. And there's other manuscripts that say, as I mentioned before, that Clopas, Alphaeus, same person, was Joseph's brother. So there's a lot of cool relationships that possibly are going on here. Is it a hill to die on? Absolutely not. Um, but it's interesting. It, it, there may be some close associations and relationships going on here that help us to understand uh, kind of the intimacy of this text and the interactions that are happening. So in verse 4, why the harsh address? Why does Jesus say woman? You know, some translations soften it by saying dear woman, <laughs> which it isn't founded. It's not in the Greek. It's just their way to try and get away from the harshness of it. But consider the fact that, number one, it wasn't necessarily harsh because, again, at the foot of the cross, how does Jesus refer to his mom? Woman, Behold thy son, referring to John, the author of the gospel. Son, behold thy mother. I think part of what's happening here is Jesus is disassociating himself from his earthly relationships, and he's highlighting his heavenly origin. And then Jesus goes on, what does this have to do with us? My time has not yet come. And then many translators and scholars, theologians, commentators say, then why does he go on and, and later concede and do the miracle anyways? If it, if it has nothing to do with him and she, he feels like she's nagging her or whatever's going on here, what's happening? Well, number one, I believe Jesus is making a statement to his mom. Yes, I'm the oldest son. Yes, I've been the responsible one. Yes, you know that I've always got a plan and I can do things. But I need you to know now, very, very... Uh, Importantly, as I begin my ministry, I take my directive from my Heavenly Father and Him alone. I don't take it because you're my mom and you have a list of things you want me to do or, you know, help you with. And He's making that really clear. And then when He says, my time has not yet come, 
what he's referring to here is that the, the, the cross, uh, all of the miracles, all of the signs are really previews of the cross, his death and resurrection. They're pointing forward to the true final sign that is captured in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so again, why does he end up doing the miracle anyways? I think what, what is happening here is Jesus is kind of saying, you know, I was going to do something without you asking me. You need to know that I had a plan all, of, all along. And, and trust me, trust me that I'm always up to something and I'm always, and, and Mary does. It goes on to say that she turns to the waiters and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She has no indication that he is going to, that he's going to uh, accommodate her or do what she has asked, but instead she goes forward in obedience. And, and what a powerful lesson for us there. I believe there's, there's so much there for you and I that the times when we feel like God has ignored us or that he has vetoed our requests or that he doesn't make sense, he's doing stuff that just doesn't make sense to us, do we still go forward in obedience? Tough times. I, I have said before, and many of you have heard the story, but long story short, when in 1990, our oldest daughter Amanda was born. In June of 1990, I graduated from Fuller Seminary. Sometime in the fall, I don't remember the exact timing of it, but I was out at night getting frozen yogurt for Denise and I. That was the rage back then. And I was at a stoplight, and a drunk driver rear-ended me at 45 miles an hour. I was at a dead stop. I was in a little VW Rabbit, and he just, like, munched the back of the car. Um, and this came at a very tough time because sometime in that fall, the church that I was working at in Pasadena, Calvary Baptist Church, had made some horrible financial decisions, and they had determined that they had to cut all of the pastor's salaries by half. And so Denise and I are like, we can't stay here. This isn't doable. Like, we can't even, the two of us, and now that we have a young child, you know. And so we were looking, we were struggling. Um, this did not seem like good timing. Uh, Denise's car was really the better of the two cars uh, and, and much more reliable. And now this car was like trashed. And uh, long story short, we had the insurance adjuster come out and wrote us a check for the damages. We went to an auto body shop that fixed it for a third of the price. And that's how we bought Christmas presents that year. And that's how we got through a tough financial time. And it was kind of like, God, what are you doing and why are you allowing this? And there's still a lot of parts of it that didn't make sense. But you start seeing that God is up to more than you can see with your human eyes. And it was kind of this lesson of, trust me, I don't make sense right now. I know you don't understand why I'm doing things or what I'm doing, but trust that I have a plan. When the remaining verses here, notice that no one knows that a miracle has taken place except for Jesus and Mary and the servants. Everybody else is just thinking, wow, there's tons of wine and this is good wine. The parents of the bridegroom have gone from being shamed and exposed the possibility of being shamed and exposed, to being honored and praised. As the head waiter says, everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then they serve the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And what is that teaching us about God? Well, we often say, well, that God always saves the best for last. 
And yeah, there's some truth to that, but I don't believe that God is the God of delayed gratification that's always going to withhold his best until the very end. I believe this is more teaching us that in your journey with God, things just get better and better and better. It's not that he saves the best for last. It's that the present and the future always eclipses the past. And the beauty of it is it never reaches a peak or a cap or a ceiling. It just gets better and better and better. And friends, that's what eternity is all about. It's not becoming complacent and apathetic because you've experienced all that there is to experience and there's nothing. No, it's an experience of being in relationship with God in an adventure that just grows deeper and better and better. And I think that's what's being illustrated here in this story. Well, in verse 11, John writes that this was the first sign that Jesus performed and revealed his glory, and the result was that the disciples believed in him, which is is exactly the point and the purpose of the miracles and the signs, to produce faith and belief in those who hear. Signs reveal Jesus' glory, which prompts faith in him as a self-revelation of God, as the word of God. Well, one last thing before we leave this, but There's more to this first miracle or sign than meets the eye. Write Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22 down. You can look at it later. But in Mark chapter 2, Jesus compares his ministry to that of a wedding banquet. And he likens himself to a bridegroom. And this in turn alludes to Old Testament passages where God's end time salvation is described as a messianic banquet. Isaiah 25, 6 predicts that the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all of the peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Jesus in this new ministry is announcing that new wine, that new day that cannot be placed in old wineskins, as Mark 2 says. The jars of water that were at this wedding that were used for ceremonial purification and washing They represent the the insufficiency of the old Jewish system. It was broken. It it wasn't working. As opposed to being replaced by the sufficiency of the new wine that Jesus brought, which is part of the Messianic banquet. And basically, by changing water to wine, Jesus is symbolically announcing that God's end time salvation has come. It's here. And that's what Jesus said Often, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Everything that you've been looking forward to and waiting for, it's here. It's now. There's a lot that's still going to happen in the future, but everything is available to you now. Eternal life is now. It's not when you die and go to heaven. Eternal life begins the moment you accept me and receive me. Turn to John 15. I want to pair that with what we just read. As you're turning to John 15, just a few chapters ahead, let me remind you that in the Old Testament, when Moses encountered God at the burning bush, God announced himself to Moses as, I am who I am. And that was what Moses was instructed to tell the people. When they ask you who sent you, tell them, I am sent me to proclaim whatever it is I'm going to proclaim to you. That's the the message that Moses is to proclaim. And so in the New Testament, God, as the great I am, reveals himself in bodily form through Jesus. 
That's basically all of John chapter 1 communicates that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nobody has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the heart of the Father, Jesus, He has revealed Him. He has manifested Him. And so that's what John is saying, is that the great I Am took bodily form in Jesus, and He has come to announce and reveal who God is. And so Jesus announces this name, I Am, as his identity through these seven powerful statements that all begin with I am. And today is the last of all those statements, I am the true vine. Let's read. John 15, 1 to 12. John writes, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this so that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love, literally remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full. One of the things that I was exploring this week is the context of this. I, for years, have, I believe mistakenly now, thought that this took place in the upper room. Here's what you have happening. You have chapters 13 through 17 in John that aren't in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's a lot of reasons for that. John was one of the three, James, Peter, and John, that were in the Garden of Gethsemane. He saw stuff that the other disciples didn't see. He also was making different points. But basically, John 13 through 17 is extra material, not in the other Gospels. And in the other Gospels, particularly in Matthew and Mark, you have the Last Supper, you have uh, the disciples singing a hymn after that, and then they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus gets arrested, and everything goes down. But in John's gospel, you don't have that. You have all of these other chapters. You have the foot washing uh, around the table. You have uh, the vine and the branches. You have the teaching on the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. And then you have the high priestly prayer of Jesus in chapter 17, which, by the way, I already have Good Friday sermon down. We're going to explore that, some really cool stuff. And then chapter 18, verse 1, you read this. If you turn over to John 18, 1. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. That's when they enter the Garden of Gethsemane, chapter 18. So the question is, where do all these other chapters take place? And I had never seen this before, but look at the end of chapter 14. Go back. Chapter 14, verse 31. Jesus says all that he says, and at the very end of chapter 14, verse 31, Get up, let us go from here. A lot of theologians and scholars believe that they're moving to another part of the upper room. They're moving from the dining room to the living room. 
I believe more likely they're going outside. Like the feeling you get after all of the other gospels, they sing a hymn, they go outside. They haven't crossed the Kidron Valley into Gethsemane yet, but they're leaving the city of Jerusalem, and they're going toward the Kidron Valley, and they're walking through a, a vineyard. And in the midst of the vineyard, Jesus is teaching on the vine and the branches. Kind of a beautiful imagery here. It's spring. The small buds and the first bunches of flowers have broken through the bark and the dry branches. The deeply rooted vines, which look pretty bare after the vine dresser had vigorously pruned them in the winter. Um, and Jesus stops in the midst of this vineyard and he begins teaching on um, this, this metaphor, the last of the seven revelations uh, of his deity, that he is the, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And, and so what's going on here? And for the first time it hit me that as much as we view John 15 as a teaching for us, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, you'll bear much fruit, abide in me, you'll be much healthier. As much as we view that as teaching for ourselves, I believe that Jesus in his humanity was affirming that for himself as well, because the garden was ahead, agony was ahead, the, the cross was ahead, and he had to lean into his Father, Heavenly Father and his humanity more than ever. And what we're going to explore in, in Good Friday service is, you know, what a beautiful thing that Jesus needed his disciples to be there for him in the garden, that he asked Peter, James, and John to come. And that wasn't, that wasn't lessening his divinity, but he's modeling for us that we need community. And part of the beauty, too, is I started thinking, holy cow, is the high priestly prayer of John 17 a prayer that he prayed in the garden? And I'm like, no, that's not true, because he prays it before they cross the valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, and what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, the agony, that's separate. So it's not that, but still, John 17 is a picture of Jesus in community uh, with his disciples and in fellowship with his Father, and it's a prayer of strength. It's a pastoral prayer of confidence for his disciples. The Garden of Gethsemane, it's a prayer of agony. It's a prayer of, I, I know this can't be so, but is there another way? Is there an escape route? Is there any other way but the cross? No, I know there isn't. You know, it's, what a contrast there. And it, it just hit me that this was as much for Jesus as it is for his disciples and for us. He, he's talking about the truth of how we need to lean into God, how we need to draw close to him, and how we need to feed on the nourishment that he provides before the storms of life hit because they will hit. And I think a perfect example of this is Peter. Peter after the resurrection. Jesus has shown himself to Peter many times after, after the cross, after the, his burial. Peter knows he's alive, but Peter in John 21 is going fishing because he is still alienated from his Savior. He's still feeling, I blew it. And Jesus uses John 21 to draw him back into an abiding relationship, to restore him, to recommission him. I, I know that because if Peter had felt that closeness, he, wouldn't have been, he would have been following Jesus everywhere Jesus went after the resurrection. But instead, G Peter's still kind of keeping to himself. He's a different disciple than he was before. And yet Jesus draws him back into relationship, back into an abiding relationship, and then sets him on fire to change the world. And what a picture that is for you and I.
Well, I want to close with this today. The, the question from all of this is, is, where are we? Where are you today? Perhaps you're in a position today where you are sick and tired of religion. You're sick and tired of going through the motions of what you're supposed to do to please God, and you're feeling no closer to God than when you started. And the beauty of what we always teach and proclaim is that Christianity is not a religion. Every religion says do this to earn God's favor. Christianity is unique in that it says God has already done this to secure your favor. It's not what you do. It's not a, an act of works. It's a gift of grace, lest any of us should boast. That's the beauty of it. And the question is, uh, a lot of us are going through storms right now, maybe small storms, maybe major storms, and we feel like no one gets it. And there's times where we feel like even God doesn't seem to care, doesn't seem to be listening to us, doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. But we need to lean into him during this time because he is the only one who has power over the storm. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat and we think he's not even aware of what's going on, but he stands up, he says, peace be still, and it's all over. And we realize he was in control all along. But it's hard in the midst of it. And many of us today are maybe thirsting for new wine the new wine of the gospel of Christ, the new wine of God's spirit that breathes new life wherever it goes. And I just want to close today by affirming once again that new life begins in a relationship with God. And the only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus. The easiest way that I can always explain that to you is if there were any other way but Jesus, if there were any other way but the cross, how foolish of Jesus to give his life. If there were many other ways to God, many other paths to be restored and developed, there was no other way. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. You find a restored relationship with God through me. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for anybody here today who doesn't know you and is tired of struggling through life and not finding purpose and meaning and the power that you intend for them, Lord God. I thank you for the lesson of today that it's as we go forward in obedience, maybe not understanding, seldom understanding what you're doing or the purposes behind why you allow certain things, but trusting that you are in charge, that we see your power at work. God, we want to be people that move forward in obedience, not people that stalemate and stay um, inoperable because of our doubts and questions and struggles. God, we trust you. We know that you are a good God, and we know that you will eventually provide answers to our doubts and struggles because there is a rational component to it, even though we don't see it now. So we ask for the strength to persevere through the storm. And God, I pray for myself and I pray for each person here today that we might lean into a deeper relationship with you that we might not be satisfied with yesterday's manna, with the nourishment that you provided yesterday, but every day we might gather new nourishment from you and draw closer to you because that's what life is all about. And you're drawing us into a relationship, not just where the best comes last, but where every single experience eclipses the past. And God, that's exciting. There's nothing in this world that compares with that. So, Lord God, as we bring our tithes and offerings before you today, we ask, as always, that you would bless them and multiply them for the needs of this church and this community and the missionaries like the Griffiths that we saw today that are doing your kingdom work around the world. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.